this morning we're picking back up in our series titled Rebuild, where we've been taking a look at the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah was an incredible leader, a uh, very gifted leader, but also a leader with a lot of good character, uh, which unfortunately in our country we don't always have. Uh, politicians get a bad rap. Um, and they did it in that day too, but Nehemiah, he, he stood out among them. And he was able to mobilize God's people out of their apathy and ruin and into a new reality of being rebuilt and restored and really redeemed. And uh, all of this that we've been learning the last couple of months has been the result of Nehemiah and the people trusting in God both spiritually and practically, both through prayer and diligence, uh, to do the things that God had given them to do, and being obedient to that call. Following the completion of the law, at this point in, in the book, we the law is complete. Hallelujah. <laughs> the and you know, after that, revival started spreading out among the people. Uh, people started kind of coming alive and, and coming out of their shell, coming and emerging, and we, we get to see a different picture of the people than we had seen up until this point. And it all started with the organizing and structuring of God's people um, to restore the place of worship in their lives, and it also continued with a hunger and a commitment to God and His Word. And all of this, it breathed that fresh life into the people, unlike anything they'd experienced before. And so uh, the title for today's message, you can go to the next slide, is Remain Renewed. Remain Renewed. Our main passage today is Nehemiah 9, verses 1 to 39. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring together today is that God's love never fails even when we do. God's love never fails, even when we do. Now, I'll never forget when I was a barista in 2011. I was working at a local coffee shop in Milwaukee, Oregon, and in that season, I was living out my best life and my childhood dreams of working at this particular shop that I had gone to all through high school with my friend Sam, and I was making coffee, and I was leading worship at my church at the time. I was the, I was actually the worship leader. I wasn't just, you know, somebody who was uh, singing or got solo a certain day. Like, I actually got to do that. It was great. And through all this time of making coffee, the constant theme through all of it was the art of crafting the perfect drink. Um, Starbucks had their version. I'm drinking Starbucks today, by the way. And I'm so grateful for Sarah who made my drink this morning. But, you know, crafting a drink, I started at Starbucks and they have the commercial version where anywhere you go, that drink is going to be virtually the same <laughs> anywhere in the world. Uh, and then there's the local version where it's all so many different factors go into your cup of coffee. And so I learned how to do that. And as someone where I'm just, as a default, I'm more of an artistic person. 
and I like to create things. And so I took a lot of pride in my work. Like in probably an unhealthy way, I had a lot of pride in like, I can make some awesome drinks. This is fantastic, right? And I got really cocky about my skills. And um, that just got worse uh, from when I would, I transitioned from Starbucks to the local shop. Uh, because at the local shop, it's all about the art. It's the steaming of the milk. It's, you know, making the cool designs like you see up on the screen. Um, I can't do the heart version. That's called a Rosetta, and that's what I would do. Uh, not that perfectly, but I would do it, and it, and it was good. I digress. Now, all throughout my training at this local shop, my boss had been imparting his his ways and his philosophies about making coffee and about business because this was his personal, this shop was his baby. And so he was letting me uh, be a barista who would show people his product. And um, there came this day in 2011, uh, I don't about 11 years ago now, um, where I got into a sharp disagreement with and I felt very justified in my part of the disagreement. Um, it was all over how you presented the coffee to the customer, believe it or not. That's how it was. That was all part of the training. Because when you make something as beautiful as that, you want to present it to the person, usually with that kind of a cup of coffee, it's just the silky, smooth, creamy texture to the the milk and so when you sip it and you get to see the art is so beautiful well i didn't i don't know if i was restating milk or how all that worked out but it wasn't that pretty so i just stuck a lid on it and gave it to the customer which to my credit he said is okay to do sometimes but not this time because he walked by and he had a certain conviction about it anyway you can cut the tension with the knife for the rest of the, the shift that I was working. He would pass by, he would be tidying different things, and I was working, doing my best, you know, trying to correct because he, he had corrected me on that. And by the end of my shift, there came this point where I just thought, I got convicted about it because, you know, I'm going to this Bible college and I'm supposed to be this Christian witness to this guy and everything, and so. Uh, even in all my pride, I thought, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. So I went to him, and I said, hey, can we talk? And I, I took the, the position of humility to try to listen to what he had to say. And then I tried to offer up my side of the story, and it just fell flat against his standards. Have you ever been in a situation like that where, where it's like you give your best defense of like, I am justified, and it's like, but that's not how we do it. And guess who's right? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And so, um, but I came to an understanding that day. And we got clear. We cleared the air. And from that moment on, we got to move forward together. And I love Windhorse Coffee and Tea. That was the place I worked. And I love my boss. Even today, he's still the owner there. And sometimes I'll go in and I'll, I'll get a, a latte because I don't usually get that. But um, love my boss. And it was such a unique experience for me because 
something he taught me as a leader and as a, a, a manager of that kind of thing was that it's important to have those conversations and to, to create space for you to have those conversations where you can clear the air. Get things out of the open so you can deal with them. Conflict or not. Uh, you've heard me say more than one time during this series that uh, conflict is not a bad thing. Uh, it just means that uh, you can actually grow from that experience. And so um, today we're going to be looking at a moment in Nehemiah's life when there was a tribe called Levi and the rest of the Israelites, they gathered in Jerusalem for a particular time to clear the air. God's people, they even experienced this incredible renewal uh, and this revelation of who God is and what he had been doing all throughout Israel's history. <clears throat> They've been hearing the words of the law, you know, the first five books of the Bible read to them, and they were so moved by that experience that they felt like, well, we got to clear the air with the Lord. We got to get right with him. And so that's what we're going to be reading about today where there finally comes this moment where we get to hear the people respond back to God and confess to him. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 1. Uh, if you uh, like to follow along on the screen, it's up there as well. Um, let's begin. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's about three hours, by the way, uh, in, in their mindset quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God, standing on the stairs of the Levites were Joshua, Bani, Kabniel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenaniah. <laughs> they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Joshua, Kabniel, Bani, Hashabani, <laughs> There we go. Those names. I'm the name guy now. Everybody <laughs> knows me as that. That's terrible. Here we go. Okay. They said, they stood up, stand up, and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Now here's their prayer. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Yahweh. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are Yahweh God, who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him 
to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. You hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God. Gracious. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. Amen. Mm -hmm. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. Mm. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But 
they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies, so you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them, and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, yeah. they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law. But they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They mm -hmm. sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you because became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today, in all <coughs> that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. Mm -hmm. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or your statutes you warned them to keep, even while they were in their kingdom enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord as recorded by Nehemiah. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We, you know, as good, as bad, as ugly, it's still a beautiful picture of how good our God is. Right? God's love never fails even when we do. It was true for the Israelites and it's true for us today. Mm -hmm. Some things I, I, I see in our passage 
is that to remain renewed, the first thing we learn from their prayer is that we need to be confessing our wrongs. We need to be confessing our wrongs right away. There's a shift in tone. If you've been with us through this series, there was joy and celebration in the chapters before this, where the people were told specifically by Nehemiah and the priest saying, do not mourn, have joy, celebrate God is good. And yet, here there's a shift. And they experience the grace and the goodness of God through their feast. Um, and here, everything comes to a head in verse 1, where the people gather to do three specific things. Number one, they come to fast. To put on, the second thing, to put on sackcloth and ashes. And the third is to confess their sins to the Lord. They had just spent the past month soaking in and remembering their history with God and his promise to his people. Um, and it moved them to take that first step of admitting their need. The people practiced fasting because the weight of their spiritual state of being weighed so heavy on them that they took on a posture of humility and, you know, foregoing their, their physical needs because there was actually a deeper spiritual need at work that needed to be dealt with, that needed to be cleared and worked on so that they could bring their request before the Lord. I've heard it said that fasting is a theology of priorities. Fasting is a theology of priorities. This also factors into that sackcloth and ashes bit. It's, it's kind of a strange practice for us here. We don't have necessarily a direct equivalent, um, per se. Uh, but this was a sign of humility, an outward sign of mourning, of remorse. But these actions that these people did, I don't think, they weren't trying to gain any kind of religious favor from God through these actions. I believe that these were outward symbols and demonstrations of something that was going on inside of them, where they were hearing God's word come in and it was cutting them to the heart and they felt like, I am overcome with grief and mourning because I see where I am wrong and God is right. And so it's an outward symbol that people were, they were convicted of the places where they were wrong. And so they brought that into the light so that God could help them with it. Instead of just letting it, you know, sort of fester and just remain there, they needed to deal with it. It's kind of like my situation working at uh, the coffee shop in Milwaukee. I also, I've, I've mentioned before how I worked at an appliance parts distributor warehouse called WL Main Company. And uh, in the training specifically, because we're sending orders all over the country and everything, is that my manager made very clear to tell me, if you mess up, you let us know so we can catch it. You let us know because if an order splits, <laughs> because we entered the information wrong somehow, we're going to double pay or triple pay or, you know, it can, we pay a lot of money or we lose a customer over all those kinds of things. And so there's a great cost if you don't deal with it. 
And so we confess our wrongs. The truth is that when we're going along on our journey of faith, walking with God, when we learn that there is a part of our life that's in error, that's out of step with God and his character, it's better to be upfront and honest with God. He knows anyway. And he can help us and help us deal with the issues rather than letting that, that, that grow as a problem and fester and all of that. So let me ask you, before we move on, as we've gone through this series, or maybe uh, you're just here today and you're thinking about it today, are there areas of your life that you can identify that are out of sync with God and His ways? The truth is, God's love never fails, even when we do. And the invitation here is that we need to be confessing our wrongs to him so he can help us with it. And through the practice of that, admitting our need, that's the first step of remaining renewed. The second step, it's up on the screen, is that we need to be separating from our old life. Separating from our old life. So in verse 2 it says that those Israelite, of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Over the time that the people had gathered, day after day, hearing God's word, I imagine that when it got to the words in Leviticus, chapter 19, that say, be holy, God speaking to his people, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That maybe that would have hit a little different, that that may have struck a, a different kind of chord in them because maybe they hadn't heard that phrase before. Because even though right before that section, God makes it clear you're not supposed to mistreat foreigners in any way. He does say, though, that there's supposed to be a difference, that they are supposed to be holy, set apart, different, unique. Uh, other places in the Bible say peculiar. They are supposed to be set apart. Why is that? Because God's people bear God's name. It, it even mentioned that in, in this chapter here, that we are people called after your name. And they were ambassadors for God to the world. They, when people looked at them, they would get an idea of who God was. But as we see throughout their prayer, if you know, if we were to take the time to, to go to all these different references and, and situations where they failed in the past, it can all be traced back to their decisions that compromised their holiness with the ways of the world. Kind of like it talks about in Deuteronomy uh, in regards to marrying foreigners. It says, do not intermarry with them. Why? For they will turn your children away from following me, meaning God, to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, for a people whose biggest problem is that they were unfaithful to their God and breaking covenant with him to go and pursue other gods, that's why the people separated from the foreigners among them. It wasn't because they were trying to be mean. It wasn't because they were trying to be racist or all manner of things that we might imagine or, or read into the story. That's not what was going on here at all. The thing is, is that they knew that they had an inner bent towards unfaithfulness to their God. And so to take care of that, the only way to make sure, to make that doubly sure that their attention and their affection was on God and God alone was that they had to separate from their old life and turn their eyes on God. And so for you and I today, we need God's help. We need to experience God's word for ourselves. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us the places in our lives that are unhealthy and the things we need to separate from. And when he speaks, we listen. We need to listen and obey, actually go and do the thing that he says to do. Much like the Israelites did here with their intentionality, they set themselves apart for this moment where they could just be with God. And I imagine that there could be a warning in between the lines of these verses. And that warning is that, you know, <clears throat> the danger of not creating that separation and that distinction would be that the voice of their old life and their history have the potential to drown out the good that God wanted to speak into their life for them to experience right then and there and for us to experience right here and right now. If we want to remain renewed to our good God, then we need to fight inch for inch for holiness even when it's hard, even when it's not convenient, even when our heart might still be linked with that relationship with our old life and it feels like this is tearing us apart to separate from it, it's still worth it because ultimately God is worth it. Because God's love never fails even when we do. And that saying, never failing, never giving up, always and forever love, is calling you and I to separate from our old life so that we can embrace the life that he has for his people to remain renewed. We need to break away from that old life that's been holding us back. The third step in remaining renewed is that we need to be recognizing who our God is. Verses 5 through 31 describe who our God has proved himself to be to his people. So in verse 6, we see that uh, our God is a creating God. He created everything we see. In verses 7 through 8, we see that our God is a covenant God. That means that he made promises. Verses 9 through 31 shows us that our God is a compassionate God. 
His heart towards us is love and compassion, right? He, he cares for his people throughout their history. In verse 33, we see that our God is a consistent God in his character and in his actions. He's unique from any other God or spiritual being because he is good and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not fail. And we can trust him. And you can take that to the next. Mm -hmm. God makes promises and he keeps every single one. Now, through all, through all of this prayer, we see a contrast, though, don't we? Those words, but. <laughs> but this happened. And we recognize God's hand through all their generations. But this is shown in contrast to who the Israelite people had proved themselves to be through their actions of stubbornness and disobedience. What the people were identifying through this prayer is that God is good, they are not. God is faithful, they are not. God is loving and loyal and long-suffering, that means patient. And <laughs> their family and personal history had proved that they did not live up to that kind of loving loyalty and long-suffering. They didn't live up to their commitment to God. Israel sinned. They missed the mark. And they had failed to live up to the covenant that their fathers had made with Yahweh. And all of this means that through all the years, God never moved in his position of love towards them. The problem really started with the people. And the responsibility rested squarely on their shoulders for the situation they were in. That's why, you know, towards the end it says, the sea were slaves today. And you were righteous, and that's why we're here where we are. Can you think of times and places in your lives where you can see that God's hand was at work? Times when, you know, you know that you know that you know that God was working, and making a way where there was no way. And showing you favor in, se in seasons when even when you didn't deserve it. But his favor was still there on your life. We need to remember and recognize God in and through our lives. Because it's that kind of a revelation that's going to inspire us to participate in these steps. Of confessing. And separating and ultimately will stir our desires to align ourselves with God and offer our attention and our affection to a God who loves us and whose love never fails even when we do. The fourth and final step when we see in this prayer, the remaining renewed, is joining with our new life. So in verse 30, 38, it says, In view of all of this, in other words, God, in light of who you are and who you've proved yourself to be time and time again, you've done this, you've done that, and all you continue to do because of who you revealed yourself to be as you brought us through all this, we make a commitment to you today. Fresh today. And maybe the best way of thinking of that kind of moment that we see in Nehemiah chapter 9 of confessing, separation, recognition, and joining it's kind of like when a couple chooses to renew their wedding vows. And, you know, they've gone through all the highs and lows together. 
They've gone through seasons of testing and trying in their marriage, through every failure and every faithful moment for them. Through it all, they reach a point where they want to recommit their lives to each other. To renew and recommit to that promise they made all those years ago. That's what the people of Israel are doing here. And so after, you know, experiencing revival and renewal, remaining renewed does involve confessing and separating and recognizing. But God doesn't just leave them in that place of despair and destruction. There, this practice of remaining renewed is meant to bring us into an experience of the new life that God has for us. Here and now. To taste and see that the Lord is good. And to find the hope and the joy that can only be found in joining in new life with him. God's love never fails, even when we do. Let's join in that new life together. Amen. Would you pray with me?